Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey there, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 100. I can't believe I've been doing this for 100 weeks in a row, but I'll tell you what, I've met some of the most amazing people with amazing stories, and I'm super happy that people decide to put it all out there, come on the show, and share their story. And today's guest, Roger Sipple, has quite a story. He got diagnosed with cancer when he was in college and had to battle through leukemia and was able to prevail only to see life differently because he was excited to be young, excited to have life, and he looked at risk a lot differently because he was alive. And what he did is he took his idea of a database management software that he was able to create and then sell over and over and over again for profit instead of the hardware race that was going on with Apple and Microsoft and Silicon Valley when it was originally getting its name, he realized that I would rather build something once and then sell it multiple times. Well, lo and behold, there was lots of struggles along the way. And Roger shares his story about taking that company public, a couple other companies that he ended up taking public, and how he was able to look at business differently from the eyes of Wall Street and what it means to have business value and potential business value. During the interview, Roger explains his fundamentals of business and how you have to look at growth and profitability what it's like to look at businesses from the eyes of an investor or Wall Street, and then how he was able to make his decisions for companies that he was investing in after he took those three companies public. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Roger. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Good morning, Roger. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm, uh, I'm excited to have you on the show. You've got quite the track record and um, we were introduced by a mutual friend that worked for you a long time ago. And, you know, there's so many different ways we can go because of the different journeys and the different ventures you've had and been a part of. But for the listeners that don't know a bunch about your background, maybe, you know, take us back to when you decided to become an entrepreneur or didn't and how you ended up getting into it for your first venture. Well, um, actually, I was uh, 15 or 16 years old and a friend and I started a lifeguarding and swimming instruction company. In Orange County, they were building out these homeowners associations with five, 600 homes in each neighborhood. And they had to do swimming instruction and lifeguarding and they didn't know how to do it. So we'd, we'd offer that and we had an insurance policy, believe it or not. And that was, that was our big sales pitch. <laughs> don't, uh, if you don't hire us, you're uninsured. <laughs> you get an insurance policy, you got to hire your own lifeguards and you don't know how to hire lifeguards. And so we were water safety instructors from the Red Cross. And so we uh, ostensibly knew how to, how to do that. We were trained to be lifeguards and swimming instructors. So, um, that grew to be like uh, 23, 24 employees. I oh, mean, yeah. it was, wasn't a small little thing. It wasn't a junior achievement company, which I'm not knocking junior achievement. It's a great thing for <laughs> young awesome. people to do. But uh, the, I remember at graduation in high school, and this is when the whole budget for a uh, college freshman year was $3,000, right? Mm-hmm. This, uh, this uh, uh, young woman got a $1,000 scholarship from Bank of America for running this junior achievement company that grossed like $224. And I'm thinking, wait a second, we did like four grand. So anyway, that, so it was, it was clearly kind of in my blood, but uh, curiously then I went to college and I wanted to be a doctor. And I, I think it was still the independence that, that attracted me to that, that, you know, once I got that qualification, that certification, I could kind of hang up my own shingle and I could make my own hours. And then, yeah, I could kind of, uh, not have a boss. Mm-hmm. Not that I was, you know, that uh, opposed to having bosses. I, I had had a lot of jobs uh, in my youth, and I didn't mind having bosses. But it's just, it's just, it's, it's that ability to, uh, you know, make money with your own business, so that uh, you're in control. You mm-hmm. know, it, it, it just removed a lot of randomness from my life. So, so that was my goal. Uh, but then when I, I transferred from UC Irvine to UC Berkeley, I 
got diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I only had a, what appeared to be about a 20% chance of living. So it kind of it kind of put a uh, a stick in the spokes of, of that bicycle ride. I, I decided to switch majors to computer science because they I'd gotten some indications from some medical school uh, board friends that they I wasn't going to get in because no one wanted someone to die on them in medical school. So they I mean they just wanted to give the the seat to somebody who had a better chance of getting through. Oh my so uh, but the, these. Uh, People told me, well, you know, why don't you just go get a master's degree, do, you know, get a job or, you know, buy a car, date a girl, go to the movies, do something for a couple of years after you graduate. And uh, then if you if you haven't relapsed, then you've been applied. But, you know, your numbers right now don't look too good. But a couple of years from now, if you're relapse free, you know, the, the numbers would be a lot different. So anyway, that, that's what I, I. That's I, motivating. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if any of that is uh, legal anymore. I mean, I, I, was gonna I, say. I don't think. But if. It was a long time ago. It was uh, the seventies. It was before the Baki decision. Even then. So but anyway, how, did you, they, uh, how did you keep your motivation when you when you were going through all that stuff? Well, you know, the whole thing about having cancer for me—I mean, different people react to it differently. But for me, it was—you uh, know, okay, here's a life and death fight. You know, and I'm going to fight. Uh, I was a pre-med, and I, I had taken uh, biochemistry and, and organic chemistry and general chemistry. You know, I knew a lot about biology and cell biology and so I really dug into what Hodgkin's disease was and studied uh, up on it. I found the guy who wrote the textbook and was working on the cure, and he was at Stanford. And I bought his book and started reading it and got into his clinic, and he treated me. He and his staff of like 40 or 50 doctors, that they, they had the world's best uh, treatment center. Hmm. We're just 40 minutes drive down the road from Berkeley. It was just a miracle. I mean, it was just a remarkable coincidence. Wow. So what happened, I think, was, over the next several years, uh, as I switched to computer science, because I, I knew I could get a job doing that, okay? I knew I could write computer programs, and I knew, I, I knew that that paid. I discovered that, you know, databases weren't very mature yet, and actually application development for simple applications like payroll or, you know, inventory or whatever just wasn't done very well yet. And so this business of surviving cancer and building better software products and better software development tools and starting a company. And it all became sort of a life or death thing. So those three things, graduating from college, <laughs> actually successfully graduating. Well, <laughs> my scholarships ran out because I had to do a fifth year because of the switch of majors. So my fourth and fifth year was all about computer science, but I had to work full time at fifth year. So I almost flunked out trying to hold down a full-time job and major in computer science at UC Berkeley. But I succeeded, but I had nightmares for years later. And, and now I'm starting to wonder if it was some form of PTSD or something like that. <laughs> because, because the uh, radiation therapy, you know, was four months long and there was a major surgery in the middle of it. And then I had seven months of chemotherapy. Jeez. And that was the harsh chemotherapy back in the day. And, and the anti-nausea agents weren't very good. So, uh, you know, I won't go into the details. I don't want your listeners to all hang up. But 13 months of, uh, you know, if you think about it, a prisoner of war, you know, you're, you think you're going to die. And so, yeah, that, I thought I was going to die. And you're getting tortured every day. Yeah, I'm getting tortured every day. <laughs> so it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> While trying to graduate high school or college. Yeah, well, and... college, yeah. So I'm trying to get my bachelor's degree. And, and working. Uh, and trying, yeah. And, but, um, you know, I was learning so much and it was just so exciting to be young, frankly. And I, was, I wasn't relapsing. I, I got through the treatment and a year went by, another year went by. And, and all of a sudden I thought, my God, I've got a chance. And so I wasn't going to waste that chance. I mean, mm -hmm. I was very busy during those few years and I just uh, stayed very busy. And so whether it was trying to keep the company afloat, you know, while I was putting payroll on my visa and trying to build our first database product and, you know, having a few loyal friends that I hired early on doing whatever it took to try to get this product out when we had no, no investors because no one would invest in me because I was 24 when I started this company. And back then that was considered too young. Uh, nowadays it's no big deal, but everything became a life and death matter for me, which I'm not sure was a good thing, but uh, a lot of people attribute my success as an entrepreneur to the, uh, you know, take no prisoners. This is, 
we're gonna we're gonna succeed or die trying well, uh, it's, approach it's in, to run it's the interesting business. because like i mean with staring death in the face i mean you've probably got a little bit different perspective of risk than everybody else yeah well not not a whole lot intimidated me <laughs> yeah, right. sure i'll take out a 30-year loan give it to me <laughs> yeah yeah well I, I i play poker uh sometimes now poker tournaments and uh you know when people try to bluff me because i'm i'm usually the oldest guy at the table these days and you know, i'm thinking and, you know, if you had any idea how useless it is to try to intimidate me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So maybe for the listeners that, you know, don't know a ton about databases or that, what was the, what was the business? And then, you know, what were you trying to accomplish when you said, you know, database management? I know a lot of the, a couple other ventures all kind of stemmed throughout uh, some of your experience, but, you know, what were you trying to solve? And then did you start with a plan in the end of mind? Cause you, I mean, your exits are all very similar on the, on the some of the, the first three companies. Uh, yeah, uh, that's a good question. Well, there were some uh, software products being sold by companies. And I think the first software company to go public was a database uh, management system software co- company, Cullinet. But uh, you know, all these database systems uh, were originally written for very large mainframe computers. And in the seventies, there was a new thing. It was the mini computer. And instead of a computer costing $5 million or something, these computers sold for 100000 200000 300000 And then there was a new breed of computers coming out that were multi-user computers, but only sold for tens of thousands. And so I, I wrote a simpler database management system that was easier for people to use and ran uh, well on these smaller machines. And that was uh, the target. There was a new operating system called the Unix operating system, which I targeted my product for that operating system. And it, it was as much about promoting the Unix operating system as it was uh, about promoting our flavor of database management system. But it was after I designed it, I discovered uh, other people had designed a similar sort of system, uh, and it was called the relational data model, the relational database management system. And that was the basis for other companies like Oracle, Sybase, uh, Ingress. And, you know, all those companies did well. We all went public. Oracle went public three years before Informix did. Informix was my company. And uh, they, they started three years before we did. Uh, um, I'm sorry, they only went public maybe about a year before we did. But they started three years before we did. And we each doubled in size every year. So, oh. you know, a lot, uh, we'd go from 50 employees to 100 employees, but they were going from you know, uh, 300 employees to 600 employees, you know, so <laughs> we were always one eighth their size. Uh, so, um, uh, because of the, the three years of doubling that they got to do that's crazy before, before we got going. So, uh, that, that was always our battle, how to survive uh, in the uh, shadow of Oracle. And, uh, you know, that company's huge to this day. Larry Olson is the richest man in California. So I, I kind of came in second to, in a field of a lot of competitors, but uh, they were they were so much bigger the whole so time. Was what was the what was the goal? I mean, did you think that going public was kind of was that your intentions, or you know what was you know was there a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on at the same time? I mean, like what was the landscape, and what were you guys marching towards every day? Yeah, well, like like most entrepreneurs, and you know. Um, I criticize people for this now, but I didn't have a great plan when I started it. Uh, what, 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 I, what I knew is this. I knew that um, writing computer programs from scratch, from specifications that, you know, uh, I, I worked at Bechtel Engineering as a contract programmer while I was finishing my, my bachelor's degree at Berkeley. And, you know, I got paid at first $6 an hour, then $9 an hour, then $12 an hour, then $23 an hour once they figured out that I was like one of the few people around that could do the project that they really needed done. And I thought, well, $23 an hour is great. Back then, that was a lot of money. But this database management system that I, I purchased on behalf of Bechtel from Hewlett Packard to go with their mini computer, you know, they paid $10,000 for this piece of software. And so these guys at Hewlett Packard wrote this software product once, and now they're selling at $10,000 a, a pop. So it, they're making money. That software group at Hewlett Packard is making money not based on how many hours they work. It's based on how many of these reels of tape they can sell. Right. <laughs> and, and the reel of tape only costs you know, like $12 and they're selling it, you know, for 10 grand. So that profit margin appealed to me. Ding, 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 <laughs> ding, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm thinking, <laughs> well, if I could write a database management system for one of these smaller computers, 
that, and there were a lot of companies popping up in Silicon Valley to build these smaller, uh, you know, there were microcomputers, the IBM PC had, it was coming out, and there were microcomputers before that from, from smaller companies than IBM. And these were called super microcomputers because you could have eight users or 20 users using the same computer. Now we call them servers, but there were a lot of companies, like dozens, coming out with computers that would run the Unix operating system, but they had no software at all. So it it made the opportunity uh, available for companies to build software products to run on these Unix-based computers, whereas Hewlett-Packard had their computer, they had their own operating system, not Unix, they had their own database management system. So I thought, well, if I could build a database management system that could run across lots of different brands of computers and sell them for thousands of dollars a copy, then shoot, all we have to do is sell enough per year, like maybe a hundred of them or something in a year and we can break even. And then the next year, if we sell 200 of them, we're making all kinds of money. So it was the profit leverage that mm-hmm. uh, attracted me to the business opportunity. I, I didn't have time to think it through in terms of, you know, how much cash will it take to hire the people to build the product to ship the version one before we, you know, and then invoice people and then 30, 60, 90 days before we get paid. I had not, <laughs> no flow. idea. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea how to a- analyze cash flow. And so I got my former girlfriend, I had broken up with her, to invest $20,000 in the company for 10% of the company. And I thought, well, that should do it. <laughs> that didn't come anywhere close. But miraculously, uh, over the, over the, three or four years there while I was building the product, we only had to raise like $340,000 total, but it was a lot more than 20. And, and, you know, that stock got sold very inexpensively. And so those, those people that the angel investors that got me going, which was an enormous risk for them. So they deserved a hundred fold or whatever they got, but uh, they, they got an, an enormous uh, multiple return on that investment. But, uh, you know, uh, it was it was really building that company brick by brick, literally putting payroll on my visa, going to sleep every night thinking we're going to be broke by the morning. Well, I'm curious, Roger, like that was around the time where, you know, basic was coming out right where it wasn't that, you know, Gates and all those guys or everybody's kind of got the software hardware battle going on. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that somewhere around those times where... Yeah, no, it absolutely was. It was the fire in the valley, early uh, software industry uh, days, but you know, uh, Microsoft succeeded for the same reason that all of a sudden there were these microcomputers and the companies, the hardware companies building the microcomputers usually didn't build much software to go with them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you had, uh, you know, then in Microsoft's case, they had IBM building the PC and then compact came out with a clone. Then a lot of other companies came out with uh, PC clones, PC compatible. And they had lots of hardware manufacturers building platforms for software products uh, that the hardware companies were not providing. So, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh, literally someone inventing the printing press and, and you happen to know how to write books. I mean, the, the guy who invented the printing press or people that build printing presses, that doesn't guarantee there's going to be any books, right? Right, right. right. So, uh, all of a sudden, you know, there were several companies in Microsoft and Formix, Oracle, that could build software. And there were, you know, computers being sold that had no software on them. So it was an opportunity to create an industry, really, is what the exciting part of it was. Because prior to that, uh, IBM sold the computer and IBM sold the software. And, uh, you know, it took an antitrust decree to, to get it so that IBM had to allow other software companies to sell software for IBM computers. But with uh, digital equipment and Hewlett Packard and, and Data General, all these mini computer companies, they all sold their own software as well. So the pattern was continuing, and there wasn't an opportunity for much of an independent software industry until you had generic operating systems like MS DOS and then Windows and, and on multi user computers, the Unix operating system. And it was that opportunity uh, of the generic operating system that ran across dozens of brands of computers that's what created the software industry. And that was the opportunity I spotted, actually. It wasn't as much the opportunity of a better database system or 
you know, programming and the C programming language or, or, or the technical aspects of Unix itself. It was the fact that it was an operating system that was going to run across lots of different brands of computers and the, and the creation of the generic software industry. That is so exciting. I mean, I, I've read uh, some of these books and I don't know if you ever heard of the Innovators book and then, you know, the, the jobs and a couple of these documentaries. So I like that whole space. It's just crazy to think that you were right in the, the, the run and mix with all these people. And as you're watching all these companies go public, is that how you decided to go that route? Or was it something that like, you know, what led you that direction and how, you know, just kind of, what was the process like? Right. Well, um, it, that seemed like a miracle to me. I mean, after we shipped the product and we're starting to have some uh, revenue and uh, very quickly that the product was, you know, the whole strategy was qu quite successful, quite correct. Uh, all of a sudden we were positive cash flow and growing uh, really fast. Then that begged the question, you know, uh, how can I finally get some money out of this? Cause I was broke when I started it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and really, I was starving. I was just starving for some cash. So I uh, looked at different types of exits, and there were some software companies getting acquired. And I was just hoping to God some public software company would want to buy a database company. I was hoping ASK or something like that, you know, some company that was started even before us that was a couple, three years ahead of us that, you know, had gone public and, and had a a lot of revenue and profits. I was just hoping they would buy us for 10 or something million dollars, $20 million. And then we, then we doubled in size again and we actually did get an offer from 3Com for 10 to 13 million, somewhere in that range. And, you know, I had one guy on my board who was savvy enough to say, no, this company's worth more than that. You know, your, your revenues are, are $5 million going to $10 million. No way we're going to sell this company for one X next year's revenue. Right. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I, I had no idea about how to use metrics like multiples of revenues or multiples of earnings. So I just took his word for it and, and we were cash flow positive. So I wasn't scared of going broke anymore. And, and I really saw the opportunity of, I mean, it was all working. I mean, when you have a plan and the plan starts working, you get a lot braver. Uh, <laughs> right. so. yeah, that's awesome. It's not life or death anymore. Now it's just like, what, what's the plan? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fear melts away and greed takes over. I mean, you know, it's, it's just one of those two forces, it's either fear or greed that drive pretty much everything. And so uh, we started getting greedy and I just thought we were going to sell for a bigger number. I was thinking maybe we could sell for 30 million or 40 million. Something. But then an investment banker uh, came by and it would, you know, watched Oracle go public and, and had just taken Adobe public or was in the process of doing that. And really, these were, there weren't that many public software companies. So it wasn't like I was watching dozens of software companies go public. Mm -hmm. They were only a handful. And uh, she wanted to take us public um, right after uh, Adobe. So uh, we were doing 20 million on our way to 40 when that happened. And, you know, it doesn't sound like much money now. Back then, that was quite a bit in software companies. Companies in general went public when they were a bit smaller than they do now. Because of the Sarbanes-Oxley and all this other stuff makes it so you really have to be kind of a $100 million company to go public now. But And $20 million back then, you know, they, that would be about a 50 or $60 million company today probably. But. And you were making money, which is different than a lot of companies today too. <laughs> yeah, I think we had 10 consecutive quarters of profit and growth. Wow. Um, you know, it, was, it was just unheard of. But it was still a small company to go public. And so we did a small uh, initial public offering in September 86, I think it was. And then I think it was February of the next year. So it wasn't very long afterward. We did a second public offering at like over twice the value. Wow. So, you know, what did you learn through that process that took you and accelerated you in the, the rest of your journey? Because I mean, I know we don't have enough time on the, on the show to talk about like every single facet of this, but I mean, what were some of the big takeaways as you learned? What was it like working for a public company? Cause you had mentioned that you said you wanted the control and the freedom and less randomness. Yeah. Now, <laughs> yeah. now yeah. you're owned by the public where everybody's got an opinion. So like, what was that like in that process? And then how did it change after the fact? Well, with regard to Informix, which was my first, you know, it was a little bit terrifying because it was a game I didn't know. You know, I was unfamiliar with it. And I was still young. I was 30 years old. I was 24 when I started the company. I was 30 when I took it public. And, you know, I didn't understand very well what the Wall Street analyst job was and what games they played and how they tried to freak you out and figure out whether 
you know, call you and try to figure out whether you're having a good quarter or a bad quarter. And, <laughs> and then sometimes they would just write that you were having a bad quarter. You know, they'd put out an analyst report predicting, you know, putting out a sell on you and predicting some, you know, because, you know, the product's not selling as well or people aren't signing up for their next year of maintenance contract or whatever. They just make stuff up. Sometimes. <laughs> and, and I just, I couldn't believe what was going on. And, and a lot of these analysts kept telling me that, you know, you're, you're too small, Oracle's too big. You've got to start doing a lot of acquisitions. You've got to catch up in size, which I, I don't think was ever actually true. We always competed with them well just by having great products and great service. And we could have done that forever. But yeah, I sort of flinched. I sort of, uh, yeah, I listened to too much of this nonsense. And yeah, that, the stock price would go up and down totally independent of things that I did. And I, I, I did not like that. The other thing I didn't like was that when I did try to liquidate, there were these lawyers that would sue you <laughs> if your stock fell after you sold, whether, you know, and accuse you of fraud, accuse you of knowing that your stock was going to fall. And it's very hard to defend yourself. And they would just, they, they were called strike suits. They were nuisance suits. They were, uh, had no basis. And uh, usually the insurance company would pay them off. And so that was a very uh, unsettling experience to get sued for absolutely nothing and have to go through a big defense process. But, uh, you know, after I survived all that and uh, worked my way out of Informix, I, I hired a CEO and then I, I stayed on as chairman for a few years. And then finally I, I left because I was getting too many business plans in the mail. A lot of people had uh, a lot of companies they wanted me to invest in and sit on their board. And, and there were just opportunities all over the place. Every manual process needed a software product automated. You know, it wasn't just payroll and inventory anymore. It was everything. You know, customer support, uh, sales automation, marketing automation. So everything a business did uh, pretty much needed a software product. So um, my uh, uh, VP of engineering wanted to start a company. So I, I gave him some money and helped him with his ideas. And we, we started Vantive Software, which was one of the first uh, customer relationship management software products. And then while I was chairman of that company, I started a company called Visigenic Software, which uh, didn't do well at first. We kind of had a, a misdirection uh, in our initial products, but then we acquired a company that had what became one of the first application servers. Hmm. And uh, we, we pioneered the uh, three-tier computing model, which is uh, massively dominant today. Every major web application has an application server in it. So uh, that, that was all exciting stuff. I mean, that was just uh, the wild west. I mean, and, and you never, I, ne I never knew when it was going to stop. You know, when, when are you going to turn around and all the problems that need to be solved with software have been solved, you know, <laughs> and there are no more entrepreneurial opportunities in enterprise software, you know. Uh, so I, I never knew when, uh, you know, the merry-go-round would stop spinning <laughs> and there were no more brass rings to grab. So you just, you, you just kept going. You just kept starting companies and investing in companies and kept, you know, running after it with your hair on fire. So when you're, what was it like with Informix? I mean, did, you know, I think it's software, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs where they, they look at their businesses like their babies because they create it and then there's a reflection of themselves and, you know, from really big, you know, huge conglomerates all the way down to the, the, the small shop kind of entrepreneurs have that same kind of feel. And with software, I do believe that it's even slightly different because code and what you're building is literally like a, like a piece of artwork. Was it, Tough going through that with Informix, and then how did your perception of that change with some of the other ventures? Yeah, well, uh, to a large degree, it, it was kind of uh, my baby, and you're right. I mean, it's authorship. I mean, I do creative writing now. I mean, I write poetry books. I write, uh, I'm working on a novel, a screenplay and stuff, and it, you write these things, and uh, you know, it's, it's your baby. You go to a workshop, and other people read it, and they tell you what they think about it, and sometimes they didn't understand it. They didn't like it the way in the best part they didn't like. And, you know, it, it kind of, it's just, <laughs> yeah. you know, it is kind of your baby. And it was the same way with software. Uh, and it was an artistic uh, activity, especially the code I wrote. I, I, I wrote a lot of comments. I wrote a very highly stylized form of the C programming language. It was very clear when other people read it. And no other programmers that I know write code that way. They don't really care about the next guy who comes along and tries to read it. But, you know, it was, I was there 13 years, so it, it wore off uh, mostly. I mean, I still consider it my baby. I still remember Informix very fondly, but the, the product itself, you know, the, the engineers, the really great engineers I hired later, they, I said, well, you know, this part of the code uh, is still doing this, you know, but, but, I, but, but I, when I do this, it doesn't do that. 
They go, well, we, we rewrote that code a long time ago. And I go, you rewrote my code? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that was like year four or five, you know. So uh, uh, I, I, st- I was still very proud of products we invented and types of products. You know, we, we invented languages. So not only did we use programming languages, but we invented query languages, report writing languages, hmm. uh, fourth generation languages to create uh, new software. So I'm still very proud of the fact that uh, not only did I use language, but I invented language, and, and that uh, that was a lot of fun and uh, very fulfilling. So a- after a while, you know, and times changed. So the graphical user interface came out, you know, Windows and, and the the Mac, and the languages we created were designed for dumb terminals that didn't have mice and pull down menus and stuff like that. So they they became obsolete. So you have to after a while, you have to take pride in the fact that. You built a piece of art that was uh, appropriate and perfect for the time that you created it, and that helps you leave it behind. Uh, yeah, frankly, point. yeah, yeah, no, that's a. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. I mean, it was a bridge, a stepping stone in the in the spectrum of time. Yeah, and so anyway, um, I was disappointed though that you know I, I couldn't stay at Informix forever. I mean, the the the, the pressures of, of being public and the ups and downs and the uh, mistakes I made. I did make some mistakes later on. I acquired a company that wasn't really a great move because I was responding to the pressure of Wall Street that we should just get bigger for bigger sake. And I wish I, you know, had made those mistakes and that I could still be there running that company because uh, that that would have been great. And back in the day before my day, uh, you know, when Hewlett and Packard started HP and the Intel uh, guys, you know, they, they ran those companies forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, you know, they died running those companies. They they retired out of them. And that wasn't true for my era. It could have been. I mean, looking back on it, I could have taken that route, but I didn't know it. I didn't know that to be true at the time. So I, I think there's really two ways to do this entrepreneurial thing. One is to, uh, you know, you, you referred to them as lifestyle companies, but that that might not necessarily be true. I mean, you know, I've I've met some very rich people that started a fire hydrant company. You know. I mean, they just, they're just very good at it, right? They're just good at running businesses and they grow them up and maybe they don't take them public. I think one of the richest women in America runs uh, the software company that builds the Epic systems that runs hospitals. And runs mm-hmm. like, I think most of the hospitals in the U.S. So, uh, you know, I, I, sometimes I think maybe I should have done it that way. But the ideas were popping so fast and there was so much opportunity for for growth and it was hair on fire growth and so you needed to raise a lot of money you needed to go to the venture capital community in order to get the the fuel for that growth and then you had venture capital partnerships that owned the majority of your company and they were you know five years seven year maybe 10 year long partnerships but after a while they want to get their liquidity because they want to close that partnership and move on to you know, the next partnership, Sequoia 8, that goes to Sequoia 9, right? And they have to dissolve everything in Sequoia 8. So after uh, realizing that, you know, I was sort of entrepreneuring in this era where you're, 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 you're cogging this bigger machine of uh, how companies are started and built and, and then taken public and or sold, I, I realized, well, that's sort of my destiny. But looking back on it, I think. If I had to do over again with perfect hindsight, you know, if I'd add some money, uh, so I wouldn't have to sell so much of informing, or if I would have just accepted the stock options my board was trying to give me. When I was getting uh, burnt out on being CEO and making mistakes and stuff, I, I, I wanted to, to step down as CEO. I wanted to hire someone else, but my board wanted me to stay on. And uh, they, they've been trying to give me stock options for the past three or four years. And I kept saying, well, no, I got my founder stock. I thought that's how it should work, but I don't know why the hell I thought that. At the same time, Larry Ellison was demanding all sorts of stock options from his board, and he ended up growing his percentage ownership of the company, I think. But but anyway, I, I ended up owning too little of it uh, to you know make it a company where, where I, could, I could be forever, given all the other opportunities around me. Uh, it turns out my board was right. I should have let them give me uh, stock options in the company so that I was gaining percentage ownership so that uh, I felt more, uh, you know, in, invested, you know, that it was more my baby still. Well, it's interesting that you say that because like there's a lot of these, uh, you know, entrepreneurs these days that 
you know, they're public, but they still call most of the shots. I mean, if you look at what Bezos yeah. and Elon and those guys are doing, I mean, yeah. they just totally ignore what all the shareholders and people are saying. And they, they've got this like playground of this enormous platform and cash flow that they just kind of get to do what they want with. <laughs> yeah, well, things went from where they doubled in size every year to where they went up tenfold in a year mm -hmm. or more. You know, so the social networking thing was a completely different uh, metric and completely different uh, uh, growth multiple that I've ever seen before. And so that generation, you know, I'm really jealous of that generation because, uh, uh, you know, the, the, all of a sudden the B word <laughs> got started getting tossed around early and often, you know, all these unicorns, companies worth billions, entrepreneurs worth billions, and before they even go public. And that's just so foreign to me. I mean, uh, I, I feel like, uh, you know, Babe Ruth, who got, you know, was the highest paid ball player and got now 20 grand or something. <laughs> <laughs> and actually when Informix went public, the whole company was only worth $54 million. I mean, I've, I've, I've participated in rounds of investing where the round was a hundred million dollars for 10% you know, of a company or something like that. Uh, so uh, the numbers are just very different now than they were in the eighties. Well, and, and that, maybe that's an interesting segue into like, you know, the different ventures that you were investing in, cause you've been a, uh, an active investor in lots of companies, whether it was the VP of engineering or all these other companies over the decades, what's your perception of business value? Cause you know, you went through your whole Informix journey and, but then, you know, when you flip the switch and it's, you, you're looking at it from an investor's, investor's perspective. And right before we jump on the call, we were talking about perceived value and growing enterprise value. And so how did you look at these other companies and what what would attract you to certain investments or certain companies versus others? And then what do you think that certain companies are doing these days to continue that value creation that is maybe affecting those numbers? Well, I think the two fundamental things uh, has been and, and probably always will be growth and profitability. So, uh, you know, if you can, let's pick sort of a, a middle number, <laughs> used to be the top numbers back in the day, but in Formix, we were, we were growing at 100% a year, you know, so our revenue would go from uh, 20 million to 40 million, from 40 million to 80 million. Uh, and we had about 20% profit before tax. So both of those were great numbers, you know, it was sort of maximum growth that Wall Street would give you credit for. If you grew faster than 100%, they would kind of like discount it, like, well, that isn't going to last. And uh, the profitability was, was a, a really great uh, before tax profitability percentage. So they could do math on that. They could say, okay, uh, you know, five years from now, what could this company be worth? And, you know, that large multiple of, of value, you know, if they were paying 40 times earnings, you know, they could figure out, okay, what will the earnings be five years from now, given that growth rate will slow down, the profit margins will probably shrink, but still, you know, it'll go down, you know, at a reasonable pace from here as they get to be a bigger company. Uh, and so they could sort of value what their what the stock price could be, and it could be five x, ten x out five years. And so, good long term investors would would make that bet. When the growth rates started going to you know ten fold a year or thirty fold a year or fifty fold a year, I mean some some of these social networking companies, you know, uh, the numbers did that for their first few years. It just became very hard to value, and so people started having to go to other kinds of metrics like how much, you know, the total available market for selling ads uh, from a, a, a web browser, you know, sort of became the thing that people had to measure. And if we only have two players, you know, if have two players going to be left, you know, Google and Yahoo, you know, what are, what, what's going to be the total available market and how are they going to divide that up? So all of a sudden they started using uh, different metrics, but, uh, and, and got to much bigger numbers and they turned out to be right. I mean, I, 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 I got to say, I just didn't see all that coming. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't participate well in that uh, era of the software industry. When you were, cause you were investing in other companies too. So, you know, even though you said you didn't participate in some of these other ones, I mean, you were participating in other companies that you were investing in. You know, what were you looking at with these owners? What were they doing? I mean, was it just growth and profitability? And did the interaction with wall street and going public and looking at value change how you perceived other people's companies? Yeah, it did because, um, you know, it wasn't just going public, but it was also uh, all these companies got bought after we went public. Uh, so uh, Informix, Visigenic, uh, Vantive went public and then got acquired. 
And so I got to see how other entities value a company. I got to see how the Wall Street mutual fund managers value a company when they decide whether to buy your IPO stock or not, whether to uh, buy you after your earnings report comes out. I got to see how larger companies value smaller companies. And when I invested then in startups, I had the perspective that usually the entrepreneur doesn't have, unfortunately, and I didn't have it when I started my first company, like I said, you know, to, to ask myself, okay, how big can this company grow to be? You know, so is this product the kind of product where you can grow revenue? You, you can, first of all, the dog's going to eat the dog food. You know, does anybody want this product at all? Uh, so that's sort of the first screen. But after you get past that, yes, people will buy this product. They have customers already. Okay, then, you know, are they selling it to, is it a product for all medical offices? Or is it just for dentists? Well, okay, it's just for dentists, but is that still a pretty big market? Well, okay, but is it just for orthodontists? And what, what does it do for them? Does it just do billing or does it do those things? So, you know, I sort of learned how to size a market and how to look at a company and say, you know, how, how many of these can they possibly sell before they saturate their market? And then actually, more importantly, and this I, I think I was better at looking at than other investors, these entrepreneurs, can these entrepreneurs, okay, this is their first product. What other products can they develop or acquire? I mean, are these guys, are these people going to build a big company here one way or another? Mm-hmm. You know, so if, they had a, if a group of people had a successful product and they were selling more and more of it every day, and it looked like they could do that for the next several years, and they were smart and they were scrappy and they were hustling, and they wanted to build a big company. Well, then I kind of believed that, uh, that they were going to build a big company. So then the market share of, of their first products didn't matter as much as investing in the team. And, and that's how I played the investment game when I was playing it. A combination of sort of the product, the marketplace that they're trying to sell it in, how big and how receptive is that market? How long will the sales cycles be? You know, how fast can they grow? And then how good is this team? How big a company can they build? Well, it's, it's, I've, I think you hit on a bunch of really good points. And, you know, one that I think a lot of people don't do enough of attention to is like, you know, like you said, looking at the, the different angles from a buyer's perspective, but then also when you mentioned the team, I, uh, I think there's a lot of people out there that might have a really amazing product or service or something like that, but, but somehow they can't formalize the team. And then all those amazing numbers kind of are irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah, they're, when you're investing, they are. But you, you have to be able to visualize them getting bigger because at the end of the day, when the company gets acquired or goes public, their valuation is going to be based on those numbers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, how big are the numbers, how fast are they growing, and what kind of profitability is in those numbers. And, you know, nowadays, there's companies, again, every, every few years you can go public without being profitable, right? And we're in that era again right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fine because some companies that could be profitable, particularly with the software as a service revenue model, you know, you sell a bunch of software, but you, you don't get to book that as revenue because it gets paid to you rateably over the next three years. So you have a lot of deferred revenue and a company gets valued on the combination of its revenue and deferred revenue. So you can be unprofitable and go public again. And I, I think that's okay, especially if you're in a, a market that's a huge market and it's a land grab situation where either you're going to get that market share or your competitors are. So you have to uh, raise money and spend it to go get that market share uh, while it's still a a land grab market. So, you know, the profitability thing, measuring companies on profitability, obviously in the social networking area in particular, where these companies are just losing billions of dollars, (laughs) sometimes you have to ignore what their profits are currently and you have to forecast out what their profitability can be when they decide they want to be profitable. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, it's interesting when you in, in how you how you articulate it, how that kind of combines together. But when you get the land grab and you get different things that are happening, that allow that stuff to to actually be part of the the the, the mechanics of the of the game. What, you know, when you're when you've been in introducing yourself to as a potential investor to some of these people, I mean, what are you seeing? What are some of the biggest red flags that you see people doing that they shouldn't? You know, that they should think about differently or, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you've seen that haven't gone, gone as well 
um, based on the, the, the different ventures you've gone into? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, let me clarify. I'm not really actively investing in new companies right now. I'm uh, in the phase of my life where I'm trying to find all my money. You know, I, I, I invest in companies I've already got investments in at this point. I'm just trying to uh, bring uh, a lot of these companies around to uh, maturity and, and, and resolution, either going public or getting bought. But uh when I was an active investor, uh, the mistakes I made, <laughs> there were several mistakes of omission where it was uh, a good opportunity and going to be a good company, and I, I, I didn't invest. Uh, so I've got a few of those. There's one venture capital firm. I think it's Bessemer, but I'm not sure. They've got a great write-up of all the huge opportunities they missed and why they missed them. <laughs> it's, it's really funny. But... Um, the the ones where I did invest, you know, sometimes I, I I lost my discipline, you know, and I I caved in and invested in companies that were just totally trendy, you know, uh, when 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 the internet first got going, the the internet boom, you know, I mean anything with a dot com on the end of it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so I invested in a, a a few companies that were tantamount to the uh, you know frozen trucks delivering dog food. <laughs> if you jumble all the great internet losers together there there was web van that uh, you know it's the frozen truck company that that people see other investors about now and the delivering dog food or turned out dog food was too heavy to deliver and (laughs) i I guess amazon's gonna make it work anyway oh i i give i've got my dog food on subscribe and save (laughs) save They figured it out. Yeah. I don't know how they yeah, do it, but I get my uh, 40 pounds of dog food for under cost delivered at my door every month. <laughs> Somehow that works. I, I don't know. I, I think that's one that's going to work for a while until the investors decide they're done they for. Want money. Money. They that want money. They want actually to have profitability. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these companies are still subsidized, I think, by hope. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I, I made as, as many of the, those kinds of mistakes as anybody. You know, you've got to make sure a company's going to, at least in the enterprise software business, uh, you've got to make sure that they're going to get their next round. Is And, and that, that's the difficulty. A lot of investments I made sort of died uh, after the A round. We just couldn't get the B round. So the analysis I did, putting in the, the you know, the angel money or the preferred A money, uh, just wasn't accurate enough. Uh, when it came time to raise money from real venture capital firms, you know, I just ran sort of large angel funds of, you know, 10 million or 20 million. But if you want to go get a $5 million round from a, uh, or $10 million round from two firms or whatever that, where they're, where they're managing three or 400 million, now they're managing billions. But, uh, back then it was, you know, the average fund was probably two or 300 million. You know, you had to be right. You had to be right about that market size opportunity because you, now you had to help the entrepreneurs put together a slideshow that said, okay, we've we got this product. It's exciting. We've uh, got a big market potential. The, the customers are buying it. You know, the dog reading the dog food. We've just got need money to make more dog food. But, you know, if they weren't really there yet, if, if they were missing one of those categories, like the product wasn't quite done yet, well, that's not going to happen. You're not going to get a preferred fee during most of the time that I was an investor. If uh, the customers are buying it, you know, but uh, the reference calls were, you know, lukewarm, you know, you're not going to get a preferred fee. If if, uh, the pipeline, if the sales pipeline for, you know, isn't five times as big or 10 times as big as the number of companies you've already sold to. So that it was just tough. Uh, There were eras there were four or five years where it was just tough to get the next round of funding done. You know, it, as you kind of switch from, you know, working and, and being that, that serial entrepreneur in Informix and some of these other ones and switch to investors, you know, how, how was it, you know, was there enough going on where it was easy to have your kind of identity change? Because I know a lot of people struggle with that when they say, hey, what do you do? A lot of entrepreneurs after they sell, whether it's just, you know, their one-time uh, business. I mean, you know, how did you, how did you dynamically change your personality? Did you deal with any struggles? I mean, it sounds like you got a lot of hobbies right now with the writing and the poetry and stuff like that, but you know, was it easy to adapt that or, you know, how did you kind of go through that evolution? Well, it, it, uh, it was an evolution. So I was just solely an operating executive, uh, in my thirties 
uh, late late 20s and 30s. So I started in pharmacy when I was 24, and you know took it public when I was 30 in 1986, and ran it until uh, 90 or so, and then around 92, 93, I, I left the company. So I I invested in Vantive in 90, and so that was the, sort of the beginning of my investing career. So I, I did both in the 90s. I both, you know, was sort of chairman nowadays. You maybe call it executive chairman for a while at Advantage. So that was a little bit of operations, but not as much as I probably should have done, frankly, in retrospect. But then I also started Physigenic while uh, Vantive was still uh, private. So I was both an investor and a board sitter and an operating executive when I started Visigenic. And then I ran that company uh, and took it public. So I was, I think, an operating executive at that company for five or six years. While I was also investing, so I brought on a partner, Jackie McDonald, and we formed Simple McDonald Ventures. And she was reading all the business plans while I was an operating executive and then bringing me in right before, you know, she was making the decision to, she wanted to invest. And then so when, when we took Visigenic Public and sold it, that was sort of the end of my operating career. Then I had children and they needed my time and my company and my, 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 my wife told me, new company, new wife. Because <laughs> 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 being a, you know, a leader of a public company was just too demanding uh, while trying to raise children. At least it was for me and my family. I mean, every family is different, but. I don't want to tell anybody how to live their life with regard to raising their family. But for me, it was, uh, it was just too tough. My kids were too much of a handful. And so uh, then the investing life was okay because I really, I got back to that goal, right? I was making my own hours. Mm-hmm. I don't want to meet with a company. I don't, you know, I turn down the meeting. If I want to be busier, I make a, I make more investments. So th- that was the right lifestyle for me during that time. So I don't regret not being an operating executive during, you know, uh, my uh, my 40s or 50s. Mm-hmm. But uh, now I kind of do because, you know, I wanted to be an executive again, but there was too big of a gap from my last successful operating role. So it was hard to uh, sign on as a CEO of a public company. CEOs of public companies get paid quite a bit these days and so. I actually did want to do that uh, a few years ago, and I found it uh, that that people just, you know, I, I made it to the last round of interviews a couple times, but they wanted to see more recent operating experience, and so uh, usually went to someone who was currently had a CEO job or a head of head of the head of a division job. But I do spend my time still in the advisor role, which is probably the appropriate role for me these days, anyway, uh, where I sit on people's boards. So I'm still on a uh, four or five boards. And I'm trying to get on more public company boards. So I'm on one public company board, Imperva Software, security software company. And that that's a fun for me because it's sort of a culmination of all of my work in enterprise software. Because when people hack you, when they attack you, where do they go? I mean, they go to the database, they go to the application server. Mm-hmm. So uh, now uh, I'm on the board of a company who builds software to defend all the software that I built in my career. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so that, that's kind of fun. And, and I'm looking, actively looking for uh, another public board seat. Well, and I think, it, I think you got an interesting no- note there because a lot of entrepreneurs, after they're done, they don't know what to do. And, you know, I think they're always looking for the rush, you know, whether and they may just invest in something just to be a part of something when they, you know, I think the advisory role on the boards is an interesting way to, to get exposure to that without maybe the risk and or the time constraints. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you've been able to, to satisfy some of the, some of the yearning that you have with that. That's right. And it's really rewarding too. I was on a board of a, a company in Provo, Utah uh, called, Jive Communications. It's not Jive Software of San Francisco. They're a, Jive Communications is a voice over IP company. And, you know, it was really rewarding to help these fine young people, hardworking, honest as day as long, just great young people who really wanted, you know, some advice and some guidance. Not that they weren't doing great all on their own, but just some perspective, <laughs> things they worried about where I told them they didn't have to worry about that and things they weren't worrying about where I alerted them, maybe you ought to look into that a little more. 
Mm-hmm. It just gave them, uh, you know, more confidence and more peace of mind. And, 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 you know, they were grateful and the company did well. We sold it for, you know, I, I guess, uh, I guess I'm not supposed to say how much, but we, we had a really good exit and, uh, that was very rewarding. And I enjoyed that. It wasn't a public company. I was kind of hoping they would go public so I could have another public board seat. Uh, but, uh, they were in the size range of a uh, public company. So it, it, it was a great experience and I would, I would do that again. And, uh, like I said, being on another public board would be a lot of fun, particularly if they've got a, a CEO who's a first time, mm-hmm. uh, CEO at a public company. So, you know, with all the different things that you've experienced, and I know we talked about a bunch of stuff, um, is there one thing that you want to maybe highlight for the listeners that, um, haven't gone through things or, you know, haven't exited, haven't, you know, really gone through the entire transition in, that, in their life stages. One thing that maybe you want to highlight or if we've, you know, missed something that you want to uh, make sure that we put in there, what, what would it be? Well, if someone's just starting a company, I would encourage them to, uh, you know, start a company that's really good. <laughs> start, a company, start a company you'd be willing to spend the rest of your life with if, if that's, uh, that's the way it went. And then, uh, you know, somewhere along the line, decide uh, what your, your life plan is. And the earlier you do it, the better. But uh, if, if you want to start a company and be with that company until you retire, you know, design it that way in terms of investors and investments and growth strategies. And on the other hand, if uh, the nature of the company or the nature of the industry is such that that's not really possible, you're going to have to lose control early and uh, you know, by raising a lot of money. Well, you know, uh, settle in with that, but know that, you know, you're probably on one of those two tracks and build the value that you want to build uh, according to which, which track you, you, you get on. But then on a personal front, I would say, you know, you, you touched on, gee, some people and, you know, you've interviewed a hundred people on this topic. So maybe some of these people after they were done selling their company, maybe they do have some sort of seller's remorse or, you know, oh my God, what am I going to do now sort of thing. And, and, you know, I'm, in my early 60s. And so, you know, a lot of my friends are trying to figure out their retirement strategies and stuff. And some don't have great retirement strategies. So in terms of what, what are they going to do now? So I, I encourage people to live a well-rounded life. You know, I, I, I never had a shortage of things to do. I never woke up and said, oh my God, I don't have a darn thing to do today. Uh, you know, if it, I always had five careers, 10 careers I wanted to do. Uh, you know, if it wasn't be a doctor, it was be in the software industry. If it wasn't that, you know, uh, be a counselor, be a teacher, be a professor, be a airplane pilot, be a, a you know, just a professional writer, you know, a poet, a novelist, a journalist. So there's all these things that I've always wanted to do and, and could have done as a career. But yeah, I had to pick one. Right? I, yeah. I had to pick a path. And it turns out, you know, not really. I mean, you can you can kind of in your semi-retirement, you can pick a different career. You get to do mm-hmm. something that you always wanted to do and just go do it and just go do it as, as if you were a pro at it. I think that's, yeah, find some passion and a purpose. <laughs> I mean, right. Whatever, something whatever that you, you want to do. Roger, I absolutely had a blast having you on the show. What's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Well, uh, you can learn more about uh, my creative writing side at www.rogersippel.com. And um, emailing me is fine. I uh, would be happy to hear from your listeners. <laughs> you know, if, if, you, if you want some advice, that's fine, too. I'll be happy to try to give you the best advice I can. But, you know, if I end up with 100 business plans in the email, <laughs> it's, you know, if I see something that looks great, I'll... <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll forward it to someone I know who invests in that kind of thing. But like I said, I'm not actively invested in new companies, but uh, so uh, Roger, R O G E R at S I P M A C.com. Roger at sipmac.com. Sierra India, Papa, Mike Alpha, Charlie.com. Roger, thank you so much for coming on. I had a, I just, it was a blast. Okay. Well, I had a lot of fun too. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Roger. I had a lot of fun talking to him. And if there was a couple of things that I really wanted to highlight that he said something that I think every one of us as entrepreneurs should remember that your company and your idea and your creation and the evolution of your business 
is for a point in time. The value that you create and the reason that the market wants it is for a specific reason. So having that emotional attachment, I think is an extremely good thing, but also realizing that it too shall pass should help you appreciate the moment, appreciate your clients, your employees, the community, and what you've built, but then also realize that at some point you're going to have to figure out what to do with it, what's it worth, and what's the best way you can transition it. So if you want any more resources about how to mentally deal with it, how to financially deal with it, check out the website at gexpcollaborative.com. Go on to iTunes and give the Life After Business podcast a good rating. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to next week.